Well, good evening to all of you. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 13 for our study tonight. It has been a while since we've done this uh, roundtable discussion format. It, it was the end of July, the last time uh, we were up here doing this, and we're excited to be back to another study. Now, we're not introducing something new, though. Uh, for the past few weeks, minus um, the, our guest speaker for Harvest Weekend and for Gene Clover filling in when we uh, had a couple of us who were being tested, uh, we, we've been focused on a study of the parables. Each one of us took a sermon and, and addressed one of Jesus' parables. Ben started it off. I think his parable was the parable of the, the wicked vine dressers, if I'm not mistaken. I did, a, I, I did a sermon on the parable of the shrewd manager. Mingu did one on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jay, just last Sunday, concluded that series with a parable on, uh, the, of the two debtors. And so we've covered four parables and four sermons. But there are something near, there's something like, there's 30-something parables that Jesus told. Something in the upper 30s, depending on how you classify a parable, that Jesus spoke. So there are plenty more parables out there. So we've decided to spend a few more weeks uh, using this discussion format to address some additional parables. Just because they're such a vital part of Jesus' teaching, and they're so rich with information and application. So for a few more weeks, we're going to pick a single parable each Sunday night and, uh, and address it in this discussion format. Tonight, we've chosen to begin with one, of the, one fairly popular parable, one that is significant in the fact that it appears in all three synoptic gospels. It's called the parable of the sower, although an alternative title might be better, uh, titled the parable of the soils. We'll be focusing our attention on Matthew chapter 13, but this, that's my microphone's being weird, but this parable also appears in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, so you can find it in three different gospels. One other unique thing about this parable that makes it stand out in comparison to some others is that Jesus takes the time to explain this parable. It's not left open-ended for the most part. But before we get into that, one thing that's unique about this particular parable is that Jesus takes time in the middle uh, of, the, of this section of Scripture. After he tells the parable and before he explains the parable, he talks about parables in general. And so what we want to do real quick is take just a moment and do a little bit of review as to what parables are. Now, Ben, a few weeks back when he did his sermon, uh, really dove into that for a moment for us. And and explain what a parable is, and, and uh, I'm going to put him on the spot real quick. Uh, ben, will you, will you give us a little review of what a parable is once again? Yeah, so if you've been in the church long, you've known uh, what a parable is, but perhaps there's someone online or someone here tonight visiting or someone who doesn't really understand what the word parable means. We don't usually use that word every single day of our life. It's one of those uh, church words. We here, we've, we've known what parables are for a long time if you're in the church, but if you're not, maybe you don't. So a parable is just basically a, a form of teaching that Jesus uh, employed throughout his ministry. J Jesus taught using parables, okay? Parable, the word, literally means uh, to cast alongside of or, or to throw alongside. These were stories, these were lessons, applications that Jesus threw alongside the rest of his ministry and the rest of his teaching. And so uh, one way that has been described for a parable is 
an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. All right, this is a story that people on earth are easily going to be able to understand, but at the end, there is this spiritual heavenly meaning that is much greater than the story itself with the earthly meaning. And so it's, it's interesting to see how Jesus uses this style of teaching, and we know uh, why that is. I, I believe it is because uh, Jesus wanted to be relatable to whoever he was speaking to. Jesus wanted to relate. Jesus wanted to uh, find instant application in whoever he was talking to so that they could apply this to their life and, and therefore change their lives after hearing this message. Uh, Jesus used parables, these earthly stories, with heavenly meanings because he knew every single person he was talking to would be able to understand this application, would be able to understand this illustration because all of them understood the work of a farmer. All of them understood the work of a shepherd. All of them understood all the different illustrations that he uses throughout the parables. So I think that's you know, the basics of what a parable is and why Jesus uh, used parables. In fact, if you will now look at the text with me, Matthew chapter 10. Let's, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13. Let's begin in verse 10 and go through verse 17 because there is a discussion about why Jesus used parables. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now that's a lot of uh, repetition of the word hear, but do you... Do you see what he's trying to convey uh, with Jay and, and Mingu? When you hear this section of Matthew 13, what is it that you take away as the reason Jesus taught in parables? I, I think one thing we can add to um, the reason behind parables is this kind of this genius of Jesus and how he can portray one, how, how he can get out one message. And in a crowd this size or of thousands of people, he could prick certain hearts and some things could just go right over somebody's head. You know, I, I think an illustration I've heard to kind of explain this is, uh, you know, the same sun hardens the wax that softens the clay. To those that had a hard heart, like the Pharisee, Pharisees who he's been dealing with a lot in the past couple chapters leading up to this, they could hear this message and they would not get it. But to those who were starting to open up their heart, those that had, which we're going to get into maybe more of a fertile mind in this, in this, in this setting, they could hear the truths of Jesus and take away some just, you know, my life-changing lessons, while others who thought this was just a simple story about farming, who maybe picked up this or that, really didn't get the, you know, the real message. So I think there's also something to be say to the, 
how Christ could say, how how Christ could do this, how he could give one message with two meanings and and mean this to one crowd and mean that to one crowd. Well, it, it really shows the the speaking ability and the mind behind Christ in these stories as well. They're, you know, so yeah. Wonderful. Mingu, is there anything you'd like to add as to why Jesus spoke in parables? I mean, I think both brothers have uh, said uh, what I want to say, but um, one thing I would like to add is that parables uh, worked as a winnowing fork. Uh, there were so many people who were following Jesus and who gathered around Jesus to get just worldly things, worldly benefits, uh, you know, healing, I mean, physical healing and uh, some feeding and things like that, and even watching the miracles. But Jesus didn't want to, uh, you know, waste his time probably, so he uh, wanted to, uh, I, I believe he wanted to, uh, we know them, you know, so that the souls who are really focused on and who are really willing to hear the message of the uh, kingdom of God should listen to what Jesus was teaching. So by these parables, and you know, uh, John chapter uh, 5, 6, 7, you know, uh, Jesus said, I am the flesh, I, and I am the bread of, life. bread of life, and whoever eats my flesh will uh, be saved, things like that. When he said that, many people left Jesus. And I think that was intentional. Jesus wanted to use that, uh, you know, use that to uh, find out or to winnow people uh, so that he can, he can focus on the right people he wants to focus on. Thank you, Mingu. I have one more thing to add. I think it, it goes along with what we've been saying. But, you know, at that time, at this period throughout uh, the New Testament, uh, religion and study of God's Word and uh, through the Jewish system, it had really become almost there was an elitism towards it. Uh, very scholarly, very academic. People went to those who had been taught the Scriptures, went to those who had studied the Scriptures and immersed themselves in the Scriptures for answers. Uh, and they would go to the Pharisees and more likely than not leave having no understanding of what in the world was just said. Uh, because the Pharisees did not seek uh, to teach in a way that could be understood. They just uh, sought to be heard for their many words. They sought to be looked upon as smart. I think that's something we can learn from Jesus here, uh, even us tonight as we are communicators of God's word. That uh, when it comes to communicating God's word, it's, it's not about... Uh, being academic, it's not about being scholarly, it's not about uh, an elitism, it's simply about uh, pricking hearts, it's simply about allowing your audience, whoever you're listening to, uh, to leave having understood what you've just said, having been able to apply it to your life. If anyone throughout the Bible could have preached a lesson that was purely philosophical, purely uh, deep intense to the uttermost part, it was the Word that became flesh. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. If Jesus wanted to preach in a way that would blow the minds of the Pharisees in a philosophical way, he could have done that. But instead, Jesus, since his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost, 
he taught in these different fashions, in this parable uh, way, so that he could actually reach the lost. He did not really uh, consume himself with seeking those who thought they were saved. He sought those who knew they were lost. And that's exactly why he employs uh, parables in his teaching. I think it's very powerful for us today, even if you're not a preacher, to do that same thing in your everyday life, to reach those people that are around you that maybe even any of us aren't able to reach because they see us as a preacher, as you know, one of these people like the Pharisees. Well, they might see you as an, someone like them. And they'll listen to you because you are down to earth with them. You're applicable to them. You are in their life situation. So I think that's something all of us can take away is, you know, yes, he, he used these parables because it was a unique way of teaching. But that's not, he didn't do it to be unique. He did it to reach. And I think we need to learn that same lesson tonight. Thank you, Ben. One thing I think will help us as we, we address par each parable that we come across in the next few weeks is to really consider the context of what's going on in that moment with that particular parable. And so I want you to think about the, the context now. You're in Matthew chapter 13. You'll also see it in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. One thing that stood out to me is that Jesus is really kind of at the height of his Galilean ministry at this point. Uh, for instance, look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. Jesus has crowds coming to him. At this stage of his ministry, particularly in Galilee, he's, he's at an all-time high. He's healed many. He's healed a leper. He's healed a centurion's servant. He's healed a paralyzed man. Uh, he's healed a man with a withered hand. He's cast out demons from a guy in the synagogue of Capernaum. He's uh, raised the widow of Nain's son. He's, uh, he's even sent the 12 apostles out on a, a short-term mission campaign around Galilee. There's a lot of attention coming to him. And now he's at a point, oh, he's even done the Sermon on the Mount already. And now he's at a point where he has this crowd approaching him in such a large mass that he's got to get into a boat and go out into a cove and speak from there so they can hear him. He's very popular in Galilee right now. But with popularity comes a mixture of audience. And Mingu was referencing this earlier. Some people who are showing up aren't really there to listen. They're there to see a miracle. They're there to see something extraordinary. They're there almost in terms of spectatorship to be entertained. And so Jesus is going to start speaking. Jay, Jay kind of alluded to this in a way with these parables that it's going to be heard by those who are, in, who are truly receptive. The message is going to, to, to resonate with them. And they're going to get this, the big spiritual truth from it. But for those who come with the hard hearts and the stubbornness <clears throat> And with the wrong motives, it's going to be veiled to them. So contextually, Jesus is at this peak of Galilean popularity. That popularity hasn't reached down to Judea and to Jerusalem yet, but in the region of Galilee where he's stationed himself, it's at a high because of all the miracles he's done, because of, of, of all the activity he's been engaged in, and the reach he's had thus far. So, so I think that's something to keep in mind. 
Is there anything you guys would like to add about the context of this parable as we get started diving into it? Yeah, I think building on that, uh, so with, with, the, with his popularity rising also comes his criticism. If you look through chapter 12 and 13, what we have is kind of this culminating tension between him, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you see that he eats on the Sabbath, and they pluck the ears of grain. And so in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, the Pharisees complain, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then he departs from there, and he's in the synagogue, and heals the man's hand, and they have more complaints. And so the tension continues to rise as, they, as, they, as the Pharisees, um, in verse 14, says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. And to me, I, th- I feel like it almost culminates down in verses uh, 22 through 25 of this chapter, of chapter 12, when the Pharisees, after seeing that yet again Christ has healed a man, they explain his ability to heal this man by saying, well, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So that we see just how bad it's gotten between the, the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus is not prompting their anger, but what he's doing is making them extremely angry to the point where he thinks he's, that his power is coming from demons themselves. And so down, then down in verse 38, And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so we have all this kind of swirling in the context in the background leading up to this one big story where Jesus says some people reject the word of God. Some people, the seed is going to be cast and they are going to let the, they're, they're going to let Satan or the world, their own desires, they're not going to let it take root. So I think some of the context that we have to be aware of is this growing and kind of culminating tension that we have between his adversaries at this moment, which are those that that Ben was talking about a second ago, um, that he's speaking in a completely different way of. And, and, and going back to that very quickly, I do love the informal manner that Jesus does this too because the scribes and Pharisees, some of these great debates happen at the synagogue or near the temple. And then where does Jesus go to tell this great parable? Where well, on the seashore. He gets into a boat and goes out in a very informal way, in a very informal speech, he delivers this amazing message that we're still unpacking 2,000 years later. So I think the context going into this kind of brings out more, maybe what the Pharisees, when they are hearing this, if they were thinking, you know, is Jesus telling this message because he thinks that we're the wayside, that maybe we're the ones in the thorn? And so I, I think that just continues to add to it. Really quick, you, you think about that same tension that's happening from some of his... Uh... Uh, criticizers, mm-hmm. you have that same tension showing up within his own family. In chapter mm-hmm. uh, 13, Jesus' mothers and brothers are trying to talk to him, and he says, no, these are my mothers and brothers. There's some tension there. There's some tension back in chapter 11 with John the Baptist uh, questioning uh, why he is not uh, freeing him from prison. So there's tension on all sides along with this popularity at the same time. And I think uh, it's interesting, uh, in, in, instead of disappearing or instead of uh, a, a abandoning uh, the things going on around him, he just says, it's time to open, it's time to teach. It's, it's time to say some things and to say them powerfully mm-hmm. uh, in a way that uh, will affect everyone that's listening. Just like Mingu mentioned in John 6, I mean, he was yeah. at the height of his popularity and then that's when he decides to deliver a message that ultimately everybody leaves besides yeah. his disciples. Uh, one thing uh, I would like to add is that um, Jesus' popularity was so high, and, and you know, one of uh, Jesus' mission and his work was, I mean, very important work was to raise the disciples, I mean, educate the disciples. 
train the disciples, but it was hindered. I mean, that mission was probably hindered by the, you know, popularity. I mean, the big crowd always following him and, you know, throwing him uh, around. And for example, Mark chapter four, uh, chapter three, verse 20, then he went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the disciples could not even eat. And verse, I mean, chapter six, verse 30, I think it's 30, says that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to it. So uh, his, you know, uh, his work to, uh, to educate or um, train the disciples and apostles were not, could not be so effective because the crowds were always coming and they didn't have some necessary time uh, between themselves. So I think uh, Jesus probably felt the need to send some of them away that they, they can focus on themselves and focus on those who are really uh, want to listen to the message. Well, thank you guys for helping us set up some context. Let's read the parable itself right now, and then we're going to break it down. So Matthew 13, we'll start about halfway through verse 3. And here's the parable. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I want to go ahead and skip down to verse 18 as he gives his explanation for it, and, and then we'll do our breakdown. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. So we have some elements to this parable. Let's start by talking about the sower and the seed. When you look at the, this parable, uh, we, we know that oftentimes uh, entities within a parable represent something. When you think about the parable of the sower, what, what do you think the parable and the seed represent? What, what are they here for? Well, whenever you're communicating a message, you're having a sower who is sowing seed. Uh, who, who is sowing the message, he is putting that message to the audience, and the seed is that which it, it, it is the word that he is giving out. So you got the communicator of the word, and then you got the word itself, and that's exactly you know, what Jesus is doing here. He's 
as we've been talking about, he is in front of this multitude of people. He is the sower, and the word he is giving out is the seed. And so I believe that's, that's what he's trying to do with all these different things he's dealing with around him, this tension. He, he's, it's time to preach. It's, it's time to teach a lesson. It's time to deliver the word. Uh, and immediately there's obviously going to be different types of soul to receive that seed. What, what else stands out to you about the sower and the seed? Any other observations about those elements of the parable? Um, I think um, um, it may be better or, I don't know, but um, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I need to be very careful <laughs> to say this, but uh, the source, I think, the, I, I understand uh, the sower as Jesus, and the Word is the, the Word of God. I mean, I can, I can uh, think myself as the sower and my word. I mean, the word. If I preach or if I teach the word of God, then I can take my words or uh, the message that that I am relating uh, to the audience could be the word. But it can include. I mean, it can have a lot of uh, you know um, errors and misunderstandings. But I think um, so. I would take uh, the sword as Jesus and the word as the word of Jesus, word of, word of God. Well, I think we're aided on the seed part by looking at uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, where it says the seed is the word of God. That one's spelled out for us in Luke's account. Mark chapter 4 verse 14 says the sower sows the word which we would assume a reference to the word of God. So that one's really easy for us, and, and I do believe you have to look at the sower initially as Jesus, not because it's spelled out for us, but there is a parable that comes a few verses later, the wheat and the tares. And in the wheat and the tares, at verse 37 of Matthew chapter 13, the sower in that parable is identified as the Son of Man, a title held by Jesus. So I, I, I have to agree with Mingu and Ben both that there is a reference here to Jesus as the sower. However, I do think there's application here as well, that anyone who's doing the job of sharing the Word of God is in a capacity of sowing. And so maybe that, that, that gets us into the broader uh, application of the parable here in a little bit of you and I can become sowers. And, and one thing that stands out to me is that in the parable, the sower's not concerned with where the seed falls. The sower is just concerned with getting the seed out there, isn't he? His chief goal is to make sure the seed is spread. He's, he's not being particular about which soil it goes into. He's just making sure it's out there. And I think that that's something we should connect with or should understand. The sower, he understands his job is to make sure the seed is sown. He's not concerned with where that seed is necessarily falling specifically. So th that's my initial observation. Jay, you want to add anything? Yeah, you know, with, with my very limited, very limited um, time in a garden or any type of farm, I've only done like a couple backyard gardens, right? I know something has to happen before you start laying seed, right? You have to till the ground up. And so I think one thing we have to be mindful of when we start getting to the application point of the sower and the seed and we start seeing ourselves as a sower is we see this sower go in and it almost seemingly just says, it almost it seemingly looks like he's just throwing seed here and he's just throwing seed there. 
But the idea is there's some work to be done before that too. And, and my point is, I think sometimes maybe we, we get lulled into this thing, well, you know what, my job is just to, to sow the seed and it's on them to do that. Therefore, what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to wear a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus and you should too, and that's me sowing the seed. And if someone, you know, rejects that, then that's on them. Or I'm going to share this Instagram post, and if someone responds to it, great. If not, then I've, I've sowed the seed that way. Well, if you've ever sowed some seed before, if you've, ever lay, if you've ever done any gardening or farming like that, you know there's a lot of work to be done before that part happens. And so I think that even furthers the idea that this farmer, this sower, was indiscriminate in the area that he sowed. He tilled up everywhere. He worked everywhere to make it as, as best as could be, and yet it was still the wayside of times and still the road or, or uh, a place where we, uh, weeds could come up. And so as we start to see ourselves in the position of the sower, let's just be mindful of this idea that there's work. This is a, this is a work to be done. Yeah. It can be as simple as conversations. It can be as simple as saying a prayer with somebody. It's a very simple action, but we can't get away with just wearing the T-shirt or we can't get away with just that great Facebook post and saying, okay, well, I'm sowing the seed because I'm just casting the seed wherever, right? We still need to be focused and we, need, we still need to get our hands dirty and, and working for that seed to, to take root as much as possible. So I grew up on a farm. Uh, we, we had a 28-acre farm, and then we leased 80 acres elsewhere with cattle, and we tried really fervently at the beginning to have a great big garden. And my dad, he, he never did anything small. Still doesn't do anything small. He is not small. That's kind of a theme in our family. We're, we're, go big. So when it comes to that garden, that first couple of years, I'll never forget, uh, my dad goes, I've never done a garden in my life. Let's do a two-acre garden. And that's sure enough what we did. We did a two-acre garden uh, that was a path. It was a long strip of, of, of land, and I'll never forget uh, preparing the ground, like Jay was talking about. Uh, we were on a, to, to, to dig the, the line for the seed. Uh, I was on the back of a four-wheeler holding a two-inch galvanized steel, boom, 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 all the way down the line, making the row, and it was banging my head, but he was just like, hold on, don't drop the pole, right? So that's what we did, and that's how we did that garden, and obviously, this garden didn't go well. You know, it was two acres, it started growing, and there was no way we could pick it all, no matter how much time we spent out there. There was so many different uh, vegetables growing, and, and it literally, uh, it literally just died out at a certain point. We just could not keep up with it anymore. But another hard part about that, like you're talking about, we, we decided to do that garden just because of its location on our farm, not because of the type of soil that was at that location. And so when it comes to our farm in Alabama, we got what's called red clay. I don't know what y'all have here. I've never tried to, to do a garden here. But we got red clay in Alabama, and you're really just not going to grow much on that. But that's exactly right where my dad decided to build or to, to make that garden when the rest of our farm was fertile black topsoil. And it would have been immensely easier, immensely better to grow the garden there. And so that's an interesting thing that just came to mind as you, you brought that up. You've got to do work in the forefront. You, you've got to understand what soil you're dealing with because sometimes, regardless of how much effort you put in, uh, it's not going to produce fruit but based on the soil, so. Yeah. So let's start talking about these soils. There's four soils mentioned here. 
The first soil that gets identified uh, in the English Standard Version is referred to as the path, but it's also referred to as the wayside in other translations. And it, it essentially is depicting a fairly hard soil. Now, when you, when you read about the, the path, both the parable itself and the explanation, what do you notice about this particular soil, the wayside or the path? What stands out to you? It cannot penetrate the soil. I mean, the seed cannot penetrate the soil, and it, it cannot be planted in the soil. You know, also making sure we had good grass, we would put fertilizer out, and we would have this little cart that would spray the fertilizer out in a big, wide circle as you walked. Uh, many of you do that, I guess, today. Uh, but. What I didn't know, because when we were first starting, is, is how wide this fertilizer would, would spray. Uh, the seed would spray, so I would go right up next to, to the edge of our yard and start to spray that fertilizer, not realizing that I was fertilizing half of our driveway for no reason. So my dad looks at me and is like, what are you doing? You're wasting all this seed. And I think uh, that's, that's exactly what the wayside is. You, you're, you're not going to get any fruit from this. You're not going to get any uh, uh, product, any growth out of this because you're spraying it on ground that it can't reach the soil. There's too many barriers, there's too many uh, things in between the seed and the soil to ever make it uh, grow. But I think what's interesting about the sower here in Jesus, I, I think the Pharisees are very much the wayside. Uh, that he's going to sow, he's going to sow, he's going to sow and there's never ever going to be a time where it actually hits the soil. But, does that stop Jesus from casting that seed out? No, Jesus still, the, the sower still throws that seed out. I think about door knocking, you know, we think about that as the most cold way of evangelism, cold contacts of evangelism, but we still do it because what if there's that one? What if there's one person that's going to reach this? What if this seed is going to hit that one soil of someone who is searching, uh, searching and, and, and seeking? And so I think it's interesting, even though the wayside is, is never going to produce fruit in our mind, the sower still puts out the seed. And you'd be shocked sometimes how there are some stranded seeds that go out when you're making a garden and all the, you didn't know how it got out there, but all of a sudden there's a random corn stalk out of nowhere that fell by the wayside, but it did grow. So I think it's interesting when it comes to communicating the Word of God, we still throw that seed out there because we don't know what that seed's able to do because there is no limit to the Word of God. I think it's interesting in Jesus' explanation in 18 through 23, this is the only one that involves or evokes the evil one. I think we have to, you know, recognize that, that because of this hard, compact, in um, this, this, this soil that, that the seed can't even get into, it's just laying on top of, this is the one Satan is involved in, just sweeping that off. That's where he just comes in and just removes it. It says, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So that just shows another layer of the danger of having a hard, compact heart, yet... Christ knowing that, Christ recognizing that, Christ preaching that, still, soils that, still sows that seed. 
What's interesting to me in Matthew's account is when he gives the explanation, he says that this soil is the one that hears and does not understand. He's the only one that mentions the does not understanding. Mark and Luke leave that out. And for me, I think that might speak to a lack of effort. That this soil represents those who, who, don't, who, who may hear the word, they don't want to let it penetrate. They don't want to put forth the effort. They're hard-hearted, they're stubborn, they're lazy, whatever you want to call it. They, they don't want to allow the word of God to penetrate them and to make change. And that's the one that's, that Satan can go after. That's the one that Satan can prevent from allowing uh, growth to happen. And, and so when I, when I look at this soil, the, 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 word, the phrase that comes to me is no effort. Because there's no effort to understand. There's no effort to uh, let that seed sink in. Any other comments on this soil before we go to the next one? Okay. Um, let me brag about my English vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it is acceptance, you know, when the, from soil's side, the soil does not accept the seed. So the acceptance, uh, I mean, as Kyle said, that it is an effort of the soil to accept it. So he has to put some effort to accept it, but the soil, that ground or the paved way doesn't do anything. Great. Thank you, Mingu. Let's, we're getting short on time. We've got three more soils to go through, so let's talk about rocky soil. So you, the rocky soil is the second soil. Uh, what, what stands out to you about the rocky soil? What observation do you have there? For me, the thing that stands out is that it has no root. There's an absence of root development because it's too, the, 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 the rocks in the soil are preventing those roots from developing. To me, that speaks to a lack of maturation. That speaks to a lack of growth, an inability to, inability or lack of desire to deepen and, and to, to become stronger. And it's interesting to me that um, in, the, in the explanation, it said that this soul represents the one who hears and immediately receives it with joy, but when things get difficult, it, it falls away. To me, this speaks to uh, the, the no root terminology speaks to a lack of growth and, and a refusal to do more than just be a, on the surface, to, a, a refusal to deepen in some way. And, and I think some, some who receive God's word, who, some who are receptive to it at first, don't ever want to take the next step, don't want to go to the next level, don't want to to use a theme we had a few years ago, don't want to move the needle. And so they stay stagnant and stuck in one place. And without the depth, without the maturity, they're not able to deal with the things that life throws at them. So for me, that's what kind of stands out about the rocky soil. Uh, I found the expression in verse 21 uh, is very interesting. Uh, yet he has no root in himself. So... Uh, the seed will make a root in the soil, but this you know, phrase says he has no root in himself. That he is being compared uh, to soil. So the soil doesn't have the root in himself, in, it, in itself. In other words, uh, 
it's a bit awkward, you know. So the root should uh, grow from the soil, and the soil should make the root and maybe grab the seed in himself, as if it would not, uh, he would not let it go. But he doesn't have the root in himself. So the soil, when it, it, when it meets some uh, difficult things, then it, it goes out of himself. You know, there's a difference between hearing and listening. And uh, that's something I've learned in my life. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And a lot of times we say, I hear you. Uh, but that's not, that's not enough. Uh, it's not enough just to hear it, to listen. And that's exactly what happened last seed, or, or last soil, uh, about the wayside. It's that he, he, he heard, but he didn't understand. He heard what was said, but he didn't listen. And I think there's, that's the difference between the wayside and the rocky. The rocky heard, and he listened, but he didn't allow it to continue to grow and cultivate because of the persecution, because of the sun uh, that beat down and it was scorched. It had no root. And I think, you know, the question is, which one is more heartbreaking? The soil that has fallen by the wayside that never grew? Or the soil that grew and then was uh, tra trampled out? I think that's the obvious answer. The obvious answer is that the, the sadder seed to watch is the one that grew and then was trampled out. And Jesus, or not Jesus, I think Paul would say uh, it, would be, it would have been better for them to have not known than to have known and then turned away. And, and I think that's the difference between these two different soils. It's, it's better for us to have not known the truth than to know the truth, discover the truth, and then give it up anyway. And that's exactly what happens to this rocky soil. It's, it's a soil that was all in on fire. It, it was so excited when it heard the word. It, it, it immediately, it says, immediately sprang up. Because it, it, it immediately sprang up because it had no depth of the earth, verse 5. It immediately sprang up and, and produced. And we see that time and time again with, with Christians today that are all in. They're so excited. They're, they're, they're on fire. And then something happens in their life. Something happens to them, something happens to one of their families, some, some pandemic comes by, and they're scorched by the sun, they're trampled out, and it's incredibly sad to watch, but it happens each and every day, that rocky soil who that you thought, we think all the time, this, this one's going to be in it till the end, and then after a certain point, their seat's empty, and we don't know where they are. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. But Jesus knew it better than anyone. That all of these people that were listening to him, all of these people that he was preaching to, were likely that rocky soil. They were excited. They were here for the ride. But as, long, as soon as he left, they would die out. And that's just the reality of uh, this, this ministry, uh, ministry in general, that you notice two out of the three, see, uh, two out of the three soils uh, aren't long-term growth. That's just the reality that Jesus is trying to point out here.
Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, very quickly, um, I was just going to point out the reason why this doesn't work is the shallow soil, but also is when affliction, the bottom of verse 21, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word. This is when because they've, they've let the seed grow, this is because they've accepted this message, they have found joy in it, but as soon as their decision, or as soon as this way of life goes against them or causes them any bit of discomfort or pain, that's when it says, okay, okay, uh, you know, I'm out of this. So I think that's just an interesting point, is this is when there is soil. The, the heart, the soil accepted, the heart is there. They even find joy in it. But it's when they, find, they face persecution because of this decision of life or maturity in their spiritual life, whatever it may be, that's when, they, that's when it's quenched out. I mean, I, I wanted to say that this uh, level is, can be compared with faith. This is the stage that one, a person, when he hears the word and understands it, and he develops faith. If he fails to develop the faith, develop faith, then he fails. He fails. But if he grasps the word and understands the word and accepts the word and put the word into his conviction and confidence, then it becomes faith and it becomes alive in his life. So this, I think, this can be uh, compared with that stage of developing a faith. Third soil, this is the thorny soil. Um, and one th what we find out about this soil is that it grew up with thorns and weeds, whatever, that choked them. That's verse 7 of Matthew chapter 13. Uh, the explanation appears in verse 22 of Matthew 13, where the, this soil represents one who hears but allows the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Mark adds, as well as the desires for other things, to choke out the word. For me, the key is the last part of verse 22. It proves unfruitful. It's interesting to me that, that this seed grows, but it doesn't produce any fruit. Uh, Luke echoes that sentiment about not being able to produce fruit, or at least not producing mature fruit. And so when I think about this soil, I think about its distracted state. It's got other things uh, distracting it from its primary purpose, and as a result, it doesn't produce what it's supposed to be producing. It is unproductive and therefore unuseful. And so this soil lacks focus. It's distracted by other things. Guys, y'all want to jump in? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I will go first. I mean, sorry. But, uh, you know, when faith has been developed, then it has to be alive and active. You know, as we know from uh, the book of James, when the faith is active, it works and it makes, it bears fruits. And our lifestyle changes and uh, our life, uh, I mean, we do a lot of good things and righteous things in our lives according to God's will. So the fruitful means that the faith is now active. But, but this, this soil, uh, doesn't develop the faith uh, rightly, so it does not bear any fruit. So I think at this stage it can be, uh, you know, understood as the, you know, if the faith is really active or not. But this this soil is not active. 
When I think about the thorny soil, just real quick, I think um, if you were to look at a garden and you were to look at it zoomed out, could you tell which one was not necessarily bearing any fruit? If it was the thorny type I'm talking about. Because it, it grew. It, it, it looks like all of the other vegetables. It looks like it's doing well. But only the sower, only the gardener knows if it's bearing fruit or not. But when it comes to what we look on, it, it, it looks like everyone else. It looks just fine. It looks like all that other row of vegetables. But the truth and the reality is it's bearing nothing. And that, that's also a reality in the church today. We've got people who look like they've got it all together. But in actuality, only God knows nothing's actually going on. Nothing's actually changed, and no fruit is actually being born, and uh, that's also a sad reality. The problem with this soil is that it's trying to feed two different things. I mean, the soil is getting eaten up by the fruitful, you know, crop that's trying to grow, but the soil is also having to feed and give nutrients and water to the, to the weeds or to these thorns, these thorny um, plants that are growing up, and because of that, it all dies out. So that's the problem, I think, is trying to hold on to and trying to, the soil, this heart, is having to supply desire and attention and, and devotion to too many things. When that happens, it, it dries up. And that brings us to the good soil, for lack of better terminology. And what we find out about the good soil um, is that it, 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 it receives the seed, but also grows fruit. Um, and uh, it represents, according to verse 23 of Matthew 13, one who hears and understands and bears fruit. So you have three things there. Hearing, understanding, and bearing fruit. That's the ultimate objective of the soil. Thoughts on the good soil? That reminds me of uh, the James uh, chapter 1 verse. You know, uh, how, how we can be the good soil or the you know, good seed that bears fruit. I mean... Uh, James chapter 1, verses uh, 21 to 24. I mean, let me read it. Um, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, Blah, blah. I mean, uh, you know, the rest. So we have to be doer of the word, not only the hearer. I mean, this uh, passage sums up what we discussed, I mean, I think, very well. Yeah, you know, obviously the, the good soul is what we're all aspiring to. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and make my final point. Um, what, what I take away from this parable is when we look at these soils, when Jesus is looking out at this multitude, when he's looking out at uh, these, these, this audience of people, and even as we look out into the world today, we've got to understand three out of the four souls are never going to produce any fruit. And man, that is sad. That, that, is, that is jarring to think about. Three out of four are never going to produce long-term fruit. Uh, and that's just the reality that Jesus is facing. That's the reality that all of us face as we try to teach and, and sow the seed. We sing this song, Are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother? 
we sow that same seed today. We sow the Word of God. But what we have to take as our challenge today is, is not only asking ourselves, are we the good soil? Are we the good soil that takes the good seed and grows good fruit? That's one challenge for us tonight. The second challenge for us tonight is to understand that our task has been to sow seed in the midst of souls that won't bear fruit. Even though we know they won't bear fruit, whether they're thorny, whether they're on the wayside, or whether they're rocky, they won't bear any fruit. But the same way that sower still spread that seed, we still have to spread the seed. Because, again, we don't know what the good soil is going to wind up being. You never know what the Word of God is capable of because that's how powerful it is. So even though we're only going to win a fourth, one-fourth of the people that we come in contact with, that one-fourth is going to be saved from eternal condemnation. So it's worth every single bit of effort that we put into it. I think it's easy to see, you know, for us, we, we preach a lot, we teach a lot, we're, we're constantly, you know, having to be in this position. And when I, when I read this passage, it's easy for me to get into the sower, sower mindset. And, and, and really, to be honest, when I think of this parable, I think about church camp when it comes to that six days of sowing the seed constantly, you know, for we're preaching the Word of God. I mean, us and a, and a myriad of different great teachers are doing so much, and you see all the soils come out, you know. Uh, but really what it comes down to, what I'm taking away from this passage is, do I, am I, do I have the right soil in my life? Is my heart fertile enough? Is it, has, have, has it been tilled enough to where I can accept it? And what ultimately what makes a difference is I've got to hear and understand, but what makes a good soil, good soil is that it produced. And so what I have to answer tonight is, am I, am I producing after all the work that's been done in my life? One last thought from me is this. Every one of those soils could have been good soil. If the, uh, the path, the wayside had just been tilled up, if the rocky soil had just had the rocks removed, if the thorny soil had just had the, the weeds pulled, they all could have been good soil. And so look at yourself, which soil are you? And if you're not already the good soil, then what work do you need to do to become it? What do you need to do to prepare the soil in your own life? Amen. Mingu, any other final thoughts? Okay, um, being a good soul is all about heart. Uh, verse 15 says, for this people's heart has grown dull. So it is a heart problem. So as we want to become good soil uh, as well as good sower, uh, we have to check our heart if our heart is not is dull or not. All right. Well, that will conclude our study of the parable of the sower tonight. Next week, we'll pick another parable and resume this study and hope you'll continue to join us for these. Uh, we, we pray that you have a blessed week and let us close out this time of study tonight.